0: This is Howard David Ingham, author of We Don't Go Back A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror and Cult Cinema, and co host of Bergcast. And you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Mm
1: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the HP Lovecast Presents Fragments. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on the horror and spy genres.
0: And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature, from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the 1983 film, The Keep, directed by Michael Mann and starring Scott Glenn, Gabriel Byrne, and Jürgen Pracknow, and Ian McKellen. The story is based on F. Paul Wilson's novel, the same name, and published two years earlier. We would like to mention up front, though, that neither of us have read Wilson's novel, so we'll be basing our views and commentary singularly on the film only. But first, let's do a quick plot synopsis. June 1941. Captain Vormann and his unit are dispatched by the Wehrmacht to guard a pass in the Carpathian Alps in Romania. The unit sets up shop in a nearby mysterious keep. While taking a tour of the keep, Vormann remarks that the keep is designed to keep something in, not keep something out. That night, two Nazi soldiers attempt to steal a silver cross from the keep's wall. In the process, they are shattered into pieces, and they let loose Molassar, an entity that has been trapped inside the Keep. Soon, Molossar begins killing off Vormann's men during the nights. Vormann puts in a request to be transferred, but this is denied. Instead, the Wehrmacht sends in the brutal SS officer Kompfyr and his men to regain control and unearth what is going on at the Keep. Comfie requests the transfer of Dr. Kuza and his daughter Eva, two Jews on their way to the concentration camp, to help solve the dilemma at the keep. Molossar sees an ally in Cusa and cures him of his ailments, but also slightly corrupts him in the process. Molossar asks Cusa to free him by removing a talisman deep from within the keep. Elsewhere, another timeless being, Glakin senses Molossar escaping from the keep and makes his way to Romania. There, he falls in love with Eva. In a climactic night fight, Comfier shoots Vormin in the back and comes to the keep's courtyard to find all the Nazis dead. He is also then destroyed by Molasar. Kuza emerges from the depths of the keep with the talisman and is about to walk out, but is convinced by Eva not to. Glackin arrives and puts the talisman on the edge of his staff and zaps Molasar into another dimension and is sucked in along with him. With all the Nazis dead and the evil force of Mollis are gone, Eva and Dr. Kuza leave the keep. So, Michelle, impressions of the keep.
1: Well, you know, I'd owned a copy of, of uh, this on VHS, but I haven't watched the film in probably a good decade or more. So it was good to revisit it because, you know... Uh, memory softens the, the hard <laughs> edges over time. And um, while I vaguely remember some of the bits and pieces and watching it again, I just I realized how disjointed the narrative was. <laughs> you know, it's like it's where I honestly felt like there was a, a really good s- story to be told, but because of all the disjointed... Editing cuts uh that this movie encountered before it was released, I felt like a lot of the exposition of the story had been been left on the cutting room floor and um so I felt like it was very difficult to follow the story um I mean, I looked at Wikipedia to read what uh f. Paul wilson's uh plot was for his book. <laughs> as a way to try to fill in some of the gaps um, and that did help um, but uh, of them of the movie itself I'll be honest I thought that the stronghold the keep uh, still evoked a lot of tension um, so you know I thought that was a definitely good thing for me um, and of course I thought that Tangerine Dreams music was superb um, so those two kind of redeemed it um, but I know we'll we'll kind of dig in <laughs> and talk a bit more on specifics. Um Nick, what were your initial thoughts of the, of the film?
0: So, my, I've only seen the film the keep twice. This is the second time. The first time was 10 15 years ago. It was your VHS copy. If I recall, I remember you'd Talking about oh yeah the keep gotta watch the keep and I remember we were up in Seattle hitting like different used bookstores trying to find a copy of this and I don't know if we actually wound up finding one at like a, a closing rental store or eBay but in the end we did or you did at least come up with a copy of the keep and we watched it and I remember enjoying it back then but dang it that was before we became a film scholar <laughs> and you're able to watch a popcorn film
1: and uh, yeah I was I was thinking back just now thinking that. I can remember building this film up a lot. (laughs) And then when we watched it, I can remember afterwards being very apologetic. I
0: I don't remember that. I, I, I do remember enjoying it. And it definitely, The Keep is one of those films that if you don't stop and think about it and just take it as a super surface level of action, 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 it's fine. It really is. And I gotta say, the the, the poster art for the film is hands down amazing. I love the, the, the word, The Keep, you know, mimicking, you know, an actual keep and the people running towards it. all, it's all ominous. The poster describes the movie, you know, back in that era when posters were really good. But upon a second watch, it's... Everything that is not plot or narrative related is superb. The music, the atmosphere, the mise-en-scene, uh, the setting, uh, everything about the movie is fantastic, except they the, the plot is Swiss cheese. It's like you took a book and you exercised, excised every other chapter from it. You know, it's Swiss cheese. It's big, gaping holes. And we, we know that, you know, there was an original three-hour cut of this and they pared it down in 90 minutes and with it went everything <laughs> and and unfortunately it's to me it's a lot like Eraserhead I know Eraserhead is very revered and I'm a big David Lynch fan but to me Eraserhead is non-existent on plot great on visuals and sound especially the soundscape in that film this is like Eraserhead it's but maybe not as good maybe not as cult following-y so at a surface of it, I can still enjoy it. You know, it's nice mm-hmm. to see, you know, Nazis getting zapped, <laughs> you know, good special effects. But holy moly, there's uh, so many scenes in the film that, you know, we just looked at each other in our jaws as a gape, like what what this happened, you know? <laughs> because they cut so much of it out that there's a lack of logic in a lot of this.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of discontinuity, um, where people just meet and then they're in bad and it's like, okay, are they dreaming? Is somebody dreaming this? Or, you know, is this what they want to happen? Or is this really happening? Um, and then you cut to a sunset. We have no idea where the sunset is. It's is, It's unfortunate.
0: It, you know, okay, I think that's a... If, if, if we have to have a foothold to start this film, I mean, we can pick apart a lot of what's bad about it. And I know we kind of want to concentrate on what's in the good. But... I think out of everything the film's missing, the scene you're describing is is the one, probably, important scene that's gutted, that really makes the movie crumble, and that's the character of Eva and Glacken. Because, since the movie's so cut, you know, you have a scene where Eva's, she's getting raped by two Nazis... And then it's the second day, Glacken shows up, and I think it's because of the cutting, is implied that he seduces her, and they're in bed the second day together, and, you know, as a viewer of this, you're like, what the heck's going on? This is traumatic, not romantic. This is awful! And And because of that, you know, she's written as a Are not written, she's cut to be such a a weak character that has no development, that's just there just to, you know, either get raped or seduced by other people. And, oh, man, it's just, it's cringy and awful. And logically, it also doesn't make sense.
1: No, given everything that she goes through, it's interesting because her other relationship with her father um more is kept within the movie, and so you get a sense of decisions that he makes, decisions that she, that she makes with regards to her father. So that does make logical sense. But to me, I feel like the relationship between Eva and um, Glackin is also very important to the to the film. And he even says at one point, "is it, it almost feels like a throwaway line, but he said that you know." He wanted to be able to feel, like a physical man could feel, one time, um, and that's why you know uh, they make love it in the afternoon, and and it's very you know it's kind of artsy the way it's done. I feel like this is Michael Mann's artsy film. Yeah. Um, and the way that that he shot that scene is very artsy. Well, let, let's
0: let's talk a little bit about Michael Mann real quick because i think we both agree we're 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 a fan of michael mann's work uh uh especially um heat (laughs) he he uh, hands down he is top 10 film it is probably one of the greatest neo-noir films ever made um and not just because of its shootout sequence but it's just a a hands-down great film and And Michael Mann, you know, to me, he's he's an auteur, and I would say he probably specializes in neo-noir films. And I know he's got a handful that are not neo-noir, but a good chunk of them are criminal and neo-noir. Thief, which is his first film. Um, Miami Vice, the TV show and the film, so he has a big hand in that. Mm -hmm. Heat, Collateral, Manhunter. But didn't you have The Keep, which is... A fantasy. It's for for all purposes. It's a fantasy film, a fantasy action film with Nazis, and so it's it's sort of like Cronenberg when you look at Cronenberg's uh, filmography all of all this body horror and transformation. But he's got that one uh, <laughs> race car film. It's sort of like that. It's like why did he do that? What what that kind of stands out there. And so, you know, I'm trying to think what what are the auteur elements of Michael Mann in the keep and i was kind of coming up a little short you know probably because this is his second film and he's probably still sussing out what his vibe is and what his interests are but i do want to point out though since he's so good at criminal scenes especially in heat you have the scene in the keep where the two nazis are trying to like steal crosses off the wall and they're bumbling and loud and like (laughs) not very covert about it and, you know, they get sucked in and killed, you know, by Molasar in the Keep. Compare that to, like, De Niro and his crew in Heat, which are, like, you know, they're on top of it. Criminal mastermind. They've got everything all planned out. Just kind of an interesting, uh, extreme uh spectrum of thievery going on.
1: You know, as you're talking about that, I actually thought of a different scene in Heat, and that is the one where uh, De Niro and Al Pacino... Al-, Al Pacino? Al Pacino. Okay. I was thinking, that sure sounds like coffee rather than the actor. Um, The scene where they talk... um, In the coffee house? Yeah. Okay. And I'm feeling like the the exchange there is actually... You've got your... Who's good? Who's evil? Because they're both kind of on the wrong side of the law in in different ways. I think... I, I guess it's the fact that man has positioned two opposing characters... And they have a very interesting dialogue in that scene. I don't remember all the specifics, but I remember it being a very pivotal scene. I do think that The Keep does have nods to later films. I do feel that when he made this film, I think that he was finding his voice. And I think the conversation between um, the father and the priest are similar. And then I also think the more specifically, that conversation between the good German and the the evil German. Oh,
0: Vormin and Komfir, where they're kind of yes. going back and forth. Where I I could see you know what you know uh, Jorgens character is more mm-hmm. the Pacino character, the the law guy who's just going by the books as best as possible, while um, De Niro is the Gabriel Byrne character. You know, and I think. I haven't I've only seen it once and I barely remember it. I'm assuming that dynamic also exists in Manhunter, because that's a it's not it's not Silence of the Lambs, but it's you know prequel. It's like mm-hmm. Red Dragon remade, but in the eighties. So you have Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter, uh and I don't remember who the main guy is. I'm gonna say Edward Norton because that's who he was in Red Dragon. <laughs> I'm gonna assume that Michael Mann has that in um Manhunter, and I—I I gotta assume that interplay is also between Tom Cruise and uh, 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 who, who's the guy? Is it Jamie Fox in Collateral?
1: I think so. I
0: think so. So I—I I, I think I think you're on the right track there. Except the problem with the keep is <laughs> so much of the plot is gutted.
1: Well, and and I think pivotal conversations <laughs> because when you get to uh, Roman and Kepler having their their conversation it does feel like there's been animosity a lot more animosity than we get to really uh witness on screen we ha- we we get glimpses of it through the film but um we don't get the full impact of that conversation um, unfortunately.
0: I, I would say that the conversation, especially toward the end, is probably, if you had to pick a theme for the keep, like, what, what's the underlying message Michael Mann's getting across? Mm-hmm. There is an exchange between the two, and that, again, if the movie hadn't been cut so bad, this would be a lot more profound. But, Vorman, for once you're right, Comfer, I'm only half a man. All that we are is coming out here in this keep, Comfer. The man sees the truth. Vorman, and what truth do you see? What are you discovering about yourself, fear Huh? And I—I I, I like to think the idea here is—you've uh, got all these fascists, uh, different degrees of fascism. You know, uh, Jorgen is basically portraying the kind of the same character he did in das Boot. You know, he's—he's yep. he's not evil. He's the good German. I'm doing air quotes here because, especially in this post-Trump America, how do you tackle that kind of complicity? But that's a different dialogue. But regardless, he's. A good German, you know, he's not out there shooting the R- Romanians like uh, Gabriel Byrne's character is. They uh, got Gabriel Byrne, who's the ultimate evil. Now you're all trapped in this keep of Molassar, and again, because we don't see so much what's going on, this is the opportunity for evil to confront evil and maybe see something else within themselves. And and I I think that's. The idea of the keep. You're all trapped in there. What are you going to learn about yourself? And we as the audience learn something about ourselves as well. And... And, I, and this was an opportunity here to do something big, and of course, it didn't quite happen. I think it comes kind of close with Doctor Kuza. You know, he—he's corrupted. You know, he—he's been promised by Molasar that I'm going to get vengeance against these Nazis for you, dude. I got your back. You just got to hook me up. And you know, Kuza goes along with it because he doesn't realize he's being taken for a ride. You know, he's just—he's being played by Molasar. But luckily, he's able to snap out of it by you know, Eva saying, you know, dad, don't, don't hurt me. (laughs) I'm your, your daughter. That's like the only reason she exists in the film. It's so sad, but, but that's like kind of the one moment that we have a little bit of struggle of, oh my God, I was about to do something bad. Uh, let me introspectively look at myself. Holy snap. You know, I'm, I, I, I was played, you know, and let's be honest, you know, fascist Germany people got played here in America today. We're getting played. Um, so that exchange, I think, is really important. And I think Vorman, which is Prognal's character, sees that. And, of course, he atones for that because he gets, for seeing the truth, he gets shot by, by Comfyr. But just to see that dialogue, if we saw the actual scenes supporting it of all the individual characters, it kind of like Event Horizon in a weird sort of way, although Event Horizon went more... Pure horror, instead of you know.
1: Conf- you know what I was thinking of as you were talking about that was actually Solaris. So, oh,
0: Solaris is a perfect example of th- This this movie has shades of Solaris, absolutely. Of you know, we all got some inner demons here. How how do you confront them? Because naturally, we don't want to confront our inner demons. That's why you have support groups or therapists are evil cabin in the woods is, our keeps that you get thrown into. So, I think, you know, even if all the plot stuff being around, if they could have just nailed this once, I think the scene is nailed, it just doesn't have the support for it. If it had the support, the keep would have really been more successful.
1: Yeah, because we really miss uh, the dynamic there, because the other uh, part to that is the fact that Vermin's character... Molochar says at one point that he came to kuza because he was easy to corrupt, and you would naturally assume, well, wouldn't that be the Germans? Wouldn't that have been um, Ramen or Kef- Keflar?
0: Campfire, yeah. Campfire,
1: <laughs> and I mean Campfire is already corrupt, but he comes later. um But you're right.
0: Molochar is like, you're already evil. I can give you even more power.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting that it that it wasn't um, that it wasn't um, Vermin's character that he sought out, and and um, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. You get little cues that Vermin's trying to, like he make right, make right. Um, he's not brutal in comparison to the others, and you know he actually wants to transfer to go and fight. He doesn't want to be stuck at the keep and, you know, uh, riling up the villagers and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to find the partisans that are, you know, that are hidden amongst the, the partisans, uh, among the villagers. Um, you know, that's, he's a soldier, you know, and he'd rather be out there fighting, fighting a true enemy. He wants than to be a non- the, the political
0: soldier. Yeah. yeah. Which gets some kind of, you know, what we'd see in Vietnam with, uh, if it wasn't for those bumbling politics, we'd be able to do what we need to do, which, uh, well, I, well, let's, let's talk about that for a minute, because this is a World War II film. Mm-hmm. It is an occult World War II film, and it's a very interesting one, because this came out in the 80s, and it, this was a period where we weren't doing World War II films anymore. Before this film, you had, you know, true World War II war films. But then and Vietnam. But then Vietnam happened, mm-hmm. and that you stopped doing World War II films. That you've ran out of things to say about World War II. We're going to focus on Vietnam and Vietnam vigilante films. But really, what was also going on is the World War II films moved into kind of the occult territory, but they made really exploitation and campy ones, like Zombie Lake. Which side note I actually like Zombie Lake. <laughs> but Oasis of uh, the zombies and you had a lot of Nazi exploitation films, the, the Ilsa films, uh, mm-hmm. and all the Italian knockoffs of Ilsa, like deported men of the SS or whatever. Um, but but then, you know, Raiders of Lost Art came along and said, You know what, we could do a you know I'm gonna say campy. Our, our adventure, adventure, occulty, World War II Nazi film, but actually make it good and make it like A list style. And you had a couple of, those, and I, I think, I think um, the Keep falls into that category of Raiders Lost Ark of. Let's actually take this subject instead of exploitationy and campy and low budgety. Let's actually do it a good job with it. And I, I feel like again, plot aside. They they succeeded in that, you know, in an ocean of Vietnam films of the 80s. Here you have this kind of one-off World War Two occult film, kind of like Rare's Lost start, kind of like Last Crusade, which is going to happen a couple years later. And, uh, and I think it does a good job. And I, I can't tell if since then we've progressed or regressed with Nazi occultism because we're now in the era of things like sky sharks <laughs> where nazis are on sharks in the air taking out airplanes this is a real film
1: and what was the other one that that came out a while a while ago that had um the moon and the nazis on the moon oh
0: iron sky yeah You have iron sky which i had high hopes for that one you know liebox soundtrack but it was blah. nazis at the center of the earth uh, Dead Snow, which, uh, Guilty Pleasure, I like Dead Snow, because that one has actually done good. But you have a whole bunch of really low-grade Z. If anything, uh, out of all these films, the one that does it good is Outpost. And I think Outpost... Oh,
1: Outpost is a good one.
0: Outpost has atmosphere, and I think Outpost is indebted to the keep in terms of at least mm-hmm. atmosphere. Um, yeah, the the what, what's the guy's name? Uh, whoops. Not Svensson or whatever. He played Punisher, but whatever. Ray Stevenson, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. His film, Outpost, yeah, that's a good film. And I think...
1: The original, yeah, the ri- first one, is excellent.
0: <laughs> the the next two went the route of Sky Sharks and being silly. So, But, I, you know, it's just it's at a time where... Uh, I, it's a standout attribute of this film, I think, of when it was made in the subject matter, what it tried to tackle, and I had to commend it for that. And especially... As we said earlier, it's kind of an odd entry in uh, Michael Mann's filmography. It is the Fast Company of Cronenberg.
1: Yeah, the other thing that I was thinking about is that this film was originally supposed to be about 210 minutes, and you know, there were epic type films being made during the early to mid '80s, and those have gone on to Criterion. I'm I'm specifically thinking of The Last Emperor. Um, you know, and I feel that if the studio had perhaps backed Michael Mann on this and let him do the the longer film, and they would have been, then I think this could have been a more cohesive. And you know what? We might not even have seen this on Criterion. You know, our, our,
0: you take the Kill Bill approach: Kill Bill Volume One, Kill Bill Volume Two. Take the keep, split it into two. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, but. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll end the podcast coming back to what we'd like to see with the Keep, I think, and its kind of legacy. Um, So let's talk about. We've kind of. Uh, let's, 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 let's talk about the good stuff for the Keep because we keep going back to the plot. The plot is where it falters, but there's so much that the Keep does accomplish very well. And I think the first one is atmosphere and just like. Movies like Carnival of Souls. Yeah, this is not a slow burn movie per se, but it does have some slow burn elements to it. Its atmosphere with lighting and fog machines and big stone um, looking matte paintings uh, is is superb. And I would almost say it ventures into a little bit of Lovecraftian um, and cosmic horror especially in uh, the scenes where they peek through like the hole and you see kind of under the keep and it's this in- infinite expanse and that's a very lovecraftian type shot there that we've seen in other films
1: yeah the what was it uh Lucio Fulci's the, the Beyond the
0: beyond that the, that sequence is totally the beyond and a little bit of the void
1: the void too yeah i was even thinking <laughs> the the poster of the void uh has some throwbacks to the keep Mm -hmm. i mean i'm definitely you know if you look at one you can kind of see the influences of the other one
0: and you you, when we were talking offline you brought phantasm as well
1: yeah yeah definitely phantasm when they go through the portal and it's just yeah there's a lot there that this this film actually has given influence to other (laughs) films and um i don't want to get us off track but there's a lot of homages um to other films. We were talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's Predator. We, we had some discussion about that offline.
0: Oh, yeah. The, the beginning sequence of this film when they're coming in... And again, this movie's made before Predator, but it doesn't right. matter. They're coming in, the army's coming in on their trucks, and Juergen he lights up a big old stogie, and I can't help but think of the beginning of Predator. The mercenaries are coming in via helicopter into the jungle, just like how they're going through the forest in the keep. Light up a big old stogie.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, that even reminds me of the Spaghetti Westerns of, mm-hmm. like, uh, Clint Eastwood as as the, you know, unnamed uh, protagonists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned The Sorcerer, too, and I don't, I haven't seen that film, so I, I'm not sure yeah, we're the gonna, similarities of that, but, um...
0: Soundtrack. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the Engineering Dream, yeah. but,
1: but, you know, also
0: but, a lot of, you know, trucks driving through the jungle mm-hmm. type stuff and imagery. Yeah, we're going to have to rectify and watch, uh, Sorcerer, different director, you know, William yeah. Friedkin versus, uh, Michael Mann, but... uh,
1: But What I would like to say in addition to that atmosphere is that I felt like the imagery of the stronghold uh, represented or symbolized other world. It's very dark. It's dangerous. It's looming over uh, to the local village. That's Obviously, it's not like high tech. It's a bit more traditional. And I thought that was a great metaphor for not only the looming uh, threat of war, but just kind of like that you know, occult versus more traditional or folklore and things like that.
0: The the, the matte shots, there's not many of them, but the few matte shots of the keep when you see its exterior, because most of the time the characters are looking out from the keep across the bridge and into the town, so you don't have too many shots looking into the keep. But the few that you do, the matte painting is wonderful. And the keep doesn't look, like you would expect it. You're you thinking, because we're in Romania, we're in the Carpathian Alps, you're thinking big old like Dracula style castles here with spires and turrets. No, this, it looks, if anything, it looks like a wall with these little like blip 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 blips all over it. I don't know how to describe it. This is a bit of texture and everything. But it looks otherworldly yet anchored into the world it just it looks unsettling but at the same time it looks so plain as well it's just a big old wall but it just it looks do- regardless looks dominating
1: mm-hmm. and um definitely i
0: mean you you got to if the movie's called the keep you got to deliver on the titular keep mm-hmm. um so let's let's talk about that soundtrack cuz this is one of those films where if anyone walks away if anything they're walking away with the Tangerine Dream soundtrack and the Tangerine Dream soundtrack is awesome I mean, this is the period of, you know, Vangelis doing Blade Runner uh, Tangerine Dream doing, you know, Sorcerer you know, this is post-disco where, you know, electronic uh, soundtracks are being, you know, experimented and you're getting some really cool avant-garde stuff here I mean, if you really think about it, the big things that happened before it were, what, Forbidden Planet with the tonalities and stuff? How, yeah. how far you came with electronic stuff in just the, the 20, 25 years since?
1: Yeah, and I mean, this is, you know, Tangerine Dream was a uh, pioneer for, I would say, this. And then, like you said, Vangelis, and I would even say Alan Parsons Project mm-hmm. was was doing soundtracks as well.
0: Wendy Carlos?
1: Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So you had um you had a group of people that were really kind of moving and shaking with regards to this kind of music. Um, it's kind of surprising to me that there isn't more interest in this film for the the music itself and and musical cues from this film.
0: Yeah, that that's so we're 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 it's the I think the the rise of synthwave is starting to cool off quite a bit. But uh you know synth I I'm surprised, like you're saying, that this movie isn't so anchored in the the synthwave uh, revival that's going on because, especially the Tangerine Dream soundtrack. I mean, um, you know, when it comes to synthwave, I think for the horror aspect, you know, folks go to Carpenter and they go to Stephen King, but the other half of synthwave is that Miami Vice fast cars, cops in nice suits type stuff, which Michael Mann pioneered. So, you know, half of the Synthwave iconography is greatly uh, indebted to Michael Mann, but here he has this film, The Keep, that has seriously a proto-Synthwave soundtrack, and no one does anything with it. It might be because of the subject matter. You know, it's not a... It's an 80s film, but... it's World War II subject matter, so it, it's it's kind of not like It or Carrie or Stranger Things or something like that, and that might be the reason why, but because, again, Michael Mann, he did so much that would lay the groundwork for Vaporwave, Retrowave, and Synthwave that I'm a little shocked that uh, The Keep isn't a part of that greater revival, and I, I think part of it might be because the film just, dis- it hasn't gotten any, like... Release Love in Decades, you know, like your copy is a VHS copy. and How hard was that to track down? The movie's it only was... been released on VHS, laserdisc and we watched it on Prime. Yeah. No one's giving it love. So, it's it's almost too much of a cult movie that it's not in a lot of co- people's consciousness. And so, I think if it'd gotten a little bit extra love over the years, just like maybe a proper DVD release here and there, I think it would be that type of film with a true cult following that people would be doing artwork for it, or, yeah. or remixes of the music and other interpretations. And it just seems to elude it, and I think it's just because it's just been pushed to the side.
1: hmm Yeah. I would agree with that.
0: But, uh, I don't know. The, the, the intro of the film with the trucks coming in and Jorgen lighting up the stogie and the Tangerine Dreams... Uh, Uh, soundtrack going great intro Mm -hmm. um although there is a sequence the intro is good but it doesn't match the images but when the two nazis they're trying to steal the crosses are getting sucked into the hole and the the soundtrack really flares up but it almost sounds kind (laughs) of (laughs) heroic and like that's some good music i don't know if it quite matches the scene. This sounds like more like towards the end of the film music because these two klutzes that are releasing Molossar don't deserve this music cue going on.
1: So there's probably some editing going on behind the scenes with regards to the music as well. Yeah. One of the uh, when you when you brought up about the um, synth wave and kind of the retro, I had totally forgotten about the fact that there's Images of neon, mm-hmm. um, and there's an uh, there's one scene with uh, Glacken, and he's almost like glowing, or his staff is glowing, <laughs> and there's a very neon feel to it um, that I had completely forgotten about.
0: Yeah, there's some there's a little bit of that you know eighties neon there. Now, uh, so on the subject of of uh, Glacken and Molasar together, uh, I we talked a little bit about Molasar, like, does does the creature work or not? And it kind of works because the fog shrouds him, but we were thinking of, uh, when we first see him, you know, he's, like, reassembling himself, and we thought, Hellraiser! You know, when Frank's character is, uh, coming back to life, you know, he's just a, a walking corpse, basically. You just see his muscles and blood and stuff, and he slowly reassembles over time. That's what's happening with Molasar as well, and it's, one of those things that, surprisingly, was done a little bit more gruesome in Hellraiser than in this film. But other times, because he looks a little like a rubbery monster in the fog, he kind of looks like a He-Man villain.
1: Yeah, and even when he reaches his climatic, I guess, physical manifestation, he's a He's an odd-looking creature because his neck is really thick and kind slightly elongated. He's very tall, um, like, and I uh, guess maybe he's to represent like some sort of like demigod or other type god in whatever cosmic universe. Uh, if he's he, got Black no neck like from. that,
0: he's a pro wrestler. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I, I think I think what would benefit from the keep as we kind of wind down things, is it needs a Criterion release. I mean, Criterion put out Thief, which also has a Tangerine Dream soundtrack. Michael Mann worked with them first on Thief, brought him back for this um, film. And I, I know we've we've looked up, and, you know, Michael Mann's pretty staunch. Yeah, there's no way I'm re-releasing this. And, you know, it's, you know, producer and studio Meyer of who owns what and all these different cuts and stuff. And I, I feel like you don't need a Michael Mann director's cut for this you know I think you just need a better cut with a better uh sound quality to it because there were many instances that we were watching it where the music would really blare and not be cut correctly to what's going on you know give it a commentary track by a historian because again I don't know why Michael Mann won't touch this film you know I think it was like when Ridley Scott you know did a new version of Blade Runner that came out you know 15 years ago i think he just handed duties off to other people and he just put a stamp on at the end of it that's all michael mann has to do you know what here cinematographer i worked with i don't remember his name or here other producer you do it and i will supervise check in every once in a while okay this is a satisfactory version of the keep we'll release it at a steel book with original cut and director producer alternate cut give it a Booklet, put the Criterion... No, Criterion wouldn't release this. Put the Vinegar Syndrome logo or Shout Factory logo on it. All oh, this would be a great Shout Factory release.
1: It would. It's up their alley, too. And and I think it would
0: have a new life, because right now it's just languishing in this, this low-quality... I swear, it's a step below uh, or above VHS cut... A digital version on Amazon Prime.
1: Yeah, it was... It was a disappointment, even on Prime, to see it and realize that, you know, it's just... it. It is going to become obsolete, and it won't be available at, at some point. And I do believe that this film has influenced a number of others after it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worthwhile. I think it's an important document, you know, filmic document to have... Um not not just for
0: Michael preserved. Mann's early films, but as you're yeah. saying, film film a lot of things took its took something from the keep afterwards, overtly or covertly. You're right. Um but yeah, since it's on Amazon Prime, all Amazon has to do is lose the right to and it's basically gone forever again, so unless you've got a VHS tape or laser disc out there. Right. Or you can read the comics. Which are yes. also out
1: prints. <laughs> Yes, and unfortunately, I I have a copy of the F. Paul Wilson uh, comic book series that came out probably about uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Um, Right now, they're in a box in storage, so I haven't read those in a long time. But um, speaking about Wilson, he has basically disowned the film, um, but he feels that the comics are a good representation of his novel. Um, so something to think about
0: for a future podcast. Yeah.
1: All
0: right. I
1: think on that note,
0: I think it's time to conclude our uh, thoughts in the keep. I think again, there's a good film buried in here. Maybe not a great film, but a good genre film, a good uh, atmospheric piece. It just needs a couple of those plot holes filled back in. Uh, It won't be perfect at the end, but at least it'll be comprehensible. You get it to that state, you'll have a fine film.
1: And on that note, we're going to shift gears into upcoming events. We would like to thank Howard David Ingham for providing the bumper for this episode's introduction. Howard is the author of the Bram Stoker Award nominated We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror. And his new book... Cult Cinema, A Personal Exploration of Sex, Brainwashing, and Bad Religion in Film and Television, was published earlier this year. We wish Howard continued success.
0: Alright, so starting in August, we're shifting our schedule just a little bit. Our primary HP Lovecast will move to the second Sunday of the month, and our HP Lovecast Presents Fragments will move to the fourth Sunday. Our transmissions interview podcast will continue to post on the last day of the month. For transmissions, uh, we'll be spotlighting two to three special guests as they discuss a new or upcoming release, as well as provide a brief reading. This episode will post on Saturday, July 31st. Upcoming in August, we are extremely excited for our August programming, which will be devoted to all things The King in Yellow. We'll be exploring James Chambers' recently released anthology, Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign, published by Hippocampus Press. This episode will post on Sunday, August 8th. We'll also uh, review the INJ Culpert's adaptation and illustrated The King in Yellow graphic novel on Sunday, August 22nd. And for our transmissions episode, we'll be joined by a few writers from Under Twin Sons, And that will post Tuesday, August 31st.
1: And we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can always email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. If you feel like donating a dollar or two, we do have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always,